kind of want to go downstairs too. Uh, well, if you are not going downstairs, uh, we are in a different letter up here, and we're in the book of Hebrews, so go ahead and have your Bibles turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Um, if you are new here, uh, what we do is we, we largely preach through books of the Bible. Uh, we'll go usually through New Testament books and then go through Old Testament books. We go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, so that we'll understand the full message that the author, inspired by the Spirit, wrote. And so we are almost through the book of Hebrews. We will finish chapter 12 today, which leaves us one chapter left. Um, but I tell you, I have loved studying this book. Every time um, I, I come in and I, I read and study each week, I just feel energized and excited because of the truths that are found in the book of Hebrews, and this week is certainly no different. Today, the author concludes an argument, concludes an argument that began in chapter 1, where he has been speaking on the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. What he wants is he wants the church he wants you and I to trust in nothing but Jesus Christ. He wants us to be fixated on Jesus. He wants, to be, he wants us to be encouraged and strengthened by all that Jesus is and all that he has done for us. He wants us to keep running the race of faith. And so what we're going to do is we're going to dig in to this passage. And as we do, there's three words that I just want you just kind of have in the back of your mind that I think he's seeking to accomplish this morning. Number one, he wants us to have confidence. Confidence in the salvation of Jesus Christ. So as we look through here, our confidence should grow and swell in this passage. Number two, he wants us to be in awe of God. What we're going to see is that there is no God like this God. He is an all-consuming fire, which for the unbeliever should really be a terrifying thing. And yet, for the Christian, the one who is trusted in Christ, it is one of the greatest comforts that we can know. And three, the word joy. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ is there all-satisfying, soul-comforting joy. And he wants us to see that this morning. Nothing in creation compares with the joy that we have in Christ. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and jump in. I want to invite you to stand. Uh, here at Timberline, we stand at the reading of God's word. We do so as a means of reminding ourselves that this word comes to us inspired by God for our good, for our correction, for our equipping. So we're going to be in verse 18. We're going to read to verse 29 of chapter 12. For you have come, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let me pray. Father, Father, I pray just give wisdom to us now as we look at your word. May your spirit awaken us to the truth, to the riches, to the beauty, to the joy that's in this passage. 
I pray that our, our confidence will grow in our salvation, that we will grow in awe of you, and our joy will exponentially increase as we see the truth here. And at the same time, Lord, if there is, is any of us who are beginning to deviate from the path of Christ, walking away, Lord, I pray that this truth, that this warning that's given to us brings us back to trusting in you. Lord, open up our eyes to the truth and beauty of your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So what the author does here, he begins by speaking about two mountains, and he contrasts these mountains. Verse 18 says, you've not come to this mountain. Verse 22 says, you have come to this mountain, which is why the title today is Two Mountains, and we're going to understand the importance of these mountains. We'll look at them one at a time. The first mountain is Mount Sinai. And it is an earthly shadow of a heavenly reality. Verses 18 through 20 describe this mountain. Now, Mount Sinai, if you're unfamiliar, is the mountain that God brought Israel to after he redeemed them from Egypt. It's at this mountain God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, the civil law, the sacrificial law, the Levitical priesthood. This mountain defines Israel. Who they are is encapsulated in this mountain. And so what is it then that the author wants us to understand about Mount Sinai? Well, there's at least two things that stick out, and we could probably bring up more. But there's at least two that he's wanting us to see. Number one, Sinai revealed the holiness and power of God. So as we're looking at Mount Sinai... Clearly, he wants us to see this. When God comes down on the mountain, we're told that it trembles at his presence. It literally shakes. He says, there's a blazing fire, there's darkness, there's gloom, there's a tempest. I mean, smoke has enveloped this mountain. Lightning is going off. Fire is everywhere. It was truly this awesome and yet terrifying sight. And so as, as we look at this, I just want... I want to pause for a moment because what, what Sinai does as we look at this mountain, it reminds us of who our God is. And I think often we think wrongly about our God. And whenever we think wrongly about God, we're minimizing who God is. And, and what I mean is I think we often think of God in quantitative or qualitative terms. And what I mean by that is quantitative, meaning he's, he's simply bigger than us, he's simply stronger than us. Qualitative, he's simply better than us, he's purer than us. Like he's, he's a better version of who we are. I mean, much better, but simply a better version. But that's not who our God is. Like he's not quantitative or qualitative, just different degrees better than who we are. He is creator, we are creature. Creature. He is infinite, we are finite. He is altogether different. So I'm going to give you a word today. You're not going to use this word all the time, although I greatly challenge you to, to work this word into maybe lunch or dinner later today. Um, the word is quiddity. Now, I'm not going to use this like we do propitiation, because you all know what propitiation means. It means what? Wrath absorber. So I don't know that quiddity is going to come up as much as that. Maybe. Um, but it's a good word to know. It refers to essence. And so God is quiditatively, just made up that word, quiditatively different than we are. He's of a complete and absolute different essence than us. He is infinitely holy, infinitely perfect, infinitely powerful. This is the God who then comes on Mount Sinai so that when his quiddity comes upon this mountain, his essence, all of creation that has been spoken by him shakes and trembles before him. This is not a God like Israel, when they were in Egypt, they saw all these gods that were made of gold and bronze and silver and all these statues that were all around them. This is the God that spoke everything into existence. This is the God that when he enters into creation, it shakes and it trembles and it bows down before him. 
And what we see here is that he is so great, his essence, his quiddity is so incredibly powerful that not even a beast or a man could touch this mountain. And if it did, it had to die. But here's the thing. You couldn't go kill the beast like with your hand or the person. You had to throw rocks at it, rocks at it or shoot arrows at it from a distance or you too would be killed. Did you get that? Like this is an entirely different essence than you and I. This is the true, infinite, holy, powerful God who has created all things. In fact, we are told that only one person is able to come up this mountain, and it's Moses. In fact, one thing that the author of Hebrews throughout the book has communicated, access to God was limited under the old covenant, under Sinai. Moses was the only one who came up the mountain, and when they built the tabernacle, which then eventually became the temple, there was a room called the Holy of Holies, which was where God would make his presence known. The high priest of the tribe of Levi, so one guy of one tribe, could enter that room one time a year. Access limited under Sinai. And notice the people's response in verse 19 to the awesome display of God's power, to his quiddity. See, we can just keep working that in, can't we? To his quiddity coming down upon this mountain. They beg for Moses to be their mediator. They say, Moses, you speak to God. Let him speak to you, and then you speak to us. We do not want God to speak to us. He's too great, too powerful. It's too terrifying of an experience for us. They cringe because of their sinfulness in the presence of God. And then in verse 21, we even see Moses, the mediator of this covenant. He trembles with fear. So, number one, we have this holy and powerful God who's presented to us at Mount Sinai. And number two, we have Sinai reveals the fear of man in the presence of this holy God. We cannot come into his presence. Now get this. Mount Sinai is what the church in the book of Hebrews is wanting to go back to. That's what they're wanting to do. They want to go back to this mountain. They're worn out because of persecution. And they're thinking, and this is what sin does, it always distorts our thinking. They're thinking, if we go back to Mount Sinai, everything will be okay. But what they fail to understand is that Mount Sinai was never to be a destination part. It's not a location we go stay at. It was a shadow of a much greater reality, of a much greater mountain. In fact, if we were to go back to the book of Galatians and we were to read what Paul says about the old covenant, about Mount Sinai, we'd learn a lot of things. Like in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, this is what it says. Paul says, why then the law? Why then Mount Sinai, the old covenant? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring, until Jesus, that's what it means, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Verse 21, is the law, is Mount Sinai, is the old covenant contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if Mount Sinai, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Mount Sinai was temporary. It was given to reveal our sinfulness. It was given until Jesus Christ would come who would fulfill the righteous requirement given at Mount Sinai. And thus, what Hebrews 8 says, make it then obsolete so that then we who trust in Jesus could stand before God. Mount Sinai was temporary. It was never meant to be the place that we live at, that we dwell at. It's not an eternal dwelling. In fact, anyone who wants to go back to Mount Sinai then would be rejecting Jesus Christ. It would be to go back to Sinai would be to say, I'm going to trust in my own righteousness. To go back to Sinai would be to become a slave to sin, as what Galatians 4 says. To go back to Sinai would say, I can stand before God on my own merit. But here's the thing. 
Like when we look at Mount Sinai and all the power and this infinite, holy, and powerful God, we, when we see his quiddity, the fact that his essence is revealed and the mountain shakes at his presence, he's infinitely holy, infinitely perfect, infinitely powerful. There's no way we come stand before this God. We see that we're sinful. We see that we're unworthy. Anyone who comes before this God, this all-consuming fire, will be judged. We have no chance on our own terms to stand before God. But now, remember, remember the point of the author. He says in verse 18, you're not here. This isn't where you're at, and this isn't where you want to go. And then he says in verse 22, this is where you're at. You're at Mount Zion. And notice those words. You have come to Mount Zion, the present location of every single believer is not Sinai, but Zion. He says, Zion is your home. You are there now, he says. And Zion is infinitely more secure than your home here in Washington. Like, just just to be real, like, your home right now could burn down while you're here. It, It could be knocked over by the gigantic trees that we have. It happens. It could be blown over by by a giant windstorm. It could be flooded by some of the rivers and some of the, the lakes that we have here. Your home here is not secure. It is not eternal. But Zion will stand forever. In the Old Testament, Mount Zion referred to the temple ground. And then eventually it came to be known as all of Jerusalem. It refers to the place in which God dwells. But what we understand is that Zion was never, never, never merely a physical place here on earth. It always pointed to the eternal dwelling place of God and the place where his redeemed people would live with him forever. And so what the author does now in in verses 22 to I think 25 or 24, he's going to give us seven truths about Mount Zion. He wants us to know where we live. And these truths are meant to encourage us. These truths are meant to give us confidence in our salvation. These truths are meant to move us to be in awe of God. They're meant to increase the joy that we have so that we'll continue running the race that God has given us. These truths are meant to draw us back to the narrow path of Jesus and show us the horror of any other path. After considering this narrow path, we should never want to be on Mount Zion or Mount Sinai or anything else. I don't know if I'm doing something. We'll just see what happens. Really careful with it. Technology, you know, we're like live streaming things now, and we have cameras now. And and so um, God has blessed us to be able to do those things, and yet we're totally figuring it all out. And I feel like, um, I think Raymond, you said the other day, whenever we make like two steps forward technology-wise, we take three steps back for a while. And so um, thank you for all your patience with us as we figure out live streaming, recording, videoing, and this thing. And this has been here for like ever. Um, All right. Seven truths, Mount Zion. I want you to get this. This is amazing, these truths. Number one, Mount Zion is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Zion is God's city. And it lasts as long as God lives. And because God is the living God, the city will never ever, ever, ever come to an end. And the fact that it's called heavenly Jerusalem reminds us that the earthly Jerusalem was never an end in itself. Earthly Jerusalem always pointed us to a much greater reality, the eternal city of God. So just as, and the book of Hebrews does this, it shows how the priests, the sacrifices, the temples, the kings, everything in the Old Testament points to a much greater reality. 
the spiritual reality that comes to us in Jesus Christ. And so, number one, Mount Zion is the place in which God dwells. It is his dwelling place, and it lasts forever. Number two, Mount Zion is filled with an innumerable amount of angels and joyful assembly. So just think about that. There are 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000. You get the point? Times 10,000 times 10,000 angels gathered in Mount Zion right now. And they have one purpose. Praise God. Just bursting forth in praise to God. Now think about the contrast that's being given. Sinai, there's fire, there's gloom, there's darkness, there's a tempest surrounding the mountain. And then we come to Mount Zion where there's jubilation and absolute elation in God. Isn't that incredible? Do you see the contrast? It's clearly showing. Here is darkness and fear. Oh, but Mount Zion. The point, the place that we're supposed to be as the church, full of joy. This thing just keeps making noise, doesn't it? Whatever. Um, Number three, assembly of the firstborn. This is you and me. This is the church. Now, Jesus is the firstborn son. Israel, in the Old Testament, is called the firstborn, which then Jesus comes and fulfills as the true firstborn. And then because of our faith in Christ, we are united to him and we are now firstborns, which means we then share in the very inheritance of God. This is what one theologian said. He says, the church is a society of eldest sons of God. There are no second or third or fourth sons and daughters in the church. We all get the big inheritance. You get that? All by grace, Jesus has come that he would unite us to him and that then we'd be co-heirs with him in everything that he has. In Zion is the assembly, is the gathering of the firstborn. And get this, Mount Zion is where your name is enrolled. So there's a register, just like when Israel went into the promised land, or when they, yeah, when they went into the promised land, nope, before, when they go into the wilderness, I'm getting confused, in Numbers, after they've been redeemed, Moses takes a a roll call, basically, of the tribes and the people and the firstborn sons who are there. And now, ultimately, All the people of the church, the firstborns, are enrolled in heaven. Remember in John 14 where Jesus says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you so I may come back and bring you with me? Do you know where that place is? It's Mount Zion. That's where your name is. That's where your home is. That's the place that he's made for you and I to dwell with God forever. Number four, God The judge of all is in Mount Zion. God is there. Do you want to know why? Mount Zion is a place of joy, of jubilee, of elation. It has nothing to do with angels and has nothing to do with with the church. It has to do with the fact that God is there. That's why. I'm going to get a switch out. Are we there? Whoa. We are we're really here now. Okay, here we go. I don't even know where we are. Number four. Um, it's just really loud in the monitors, too. Uh, God is the judge of all. That's why Zion is a place of joy and jubilation and elation. He is the one who holds what we're told in in Psalm 16, 
all the pleasures forevermore in his right hand. He is the one who is life and shares life. And in, in Zion, we perfectly experience life in God. In Mount Zion, his love and, holy, and holiness radiates forth from him, warming and satisfying the soul of every single believer. So just think about this. Now, we're told in Revelation 21, 22, that there's no sun in the new heavens and new earth. Whether that's true or literal or metaphorical, but what we understand is that God, his very glory, beams forth, and that is what will warm our soul. So when you're outside on those rare warm days here in like July, at one month, um, and you feel the warmth coming upon you, in Zion, that intensity will be so much more pure and beautiful and satisfying. And it will be the very glory of God coming upon you. Revelation 3 says that we will actually sit with him on his throne forever, which means there is no limited access to God. In fact, all throughout the book of Hebrews, even now, he says, come, come to the throne of grace. You can come to the throne of grace all day long. You and I have complete and absolute access with God. And then in Zion, when we're actually physically there, we have complete and absolute total access to God at all times. Our sins have been paid in full. We've been justified in Christ. God is our judge. He does not condemn us. Rather, he calls out vindicated righteous. Number five. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, this is another reference to church. Very likely. So the first reference refers to kind of all of the church, all tribes, tongues, nations, and languages, and, and the fact that all of our names are enrolled in Zion. That is our place. But then he says, you remember those guys in, in Hebrews 11, those saints who have gone before us, the saints who have died. He says, the spirits of the righteous have been made perfect. So even those who have gone before us, all those who have died, are described as made perfect. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering he is perfected for all time. Those who are being perfected are sanctified. In Christ, he has satisfied every need that we have. Number six, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, is in Mount Zion. The reason you and I are in Mount Zion right now, the reason our names are enrolled in Mount Zion is because Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Jesus is the one who established this covenant. The old covenant was temporary. The old covenant was mediated by Moses, but Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant and thus has done away with it, that he would establish an eternal, better covenant, one that perfectly and completely deals with with our sins. Do you know that? In fact, back in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, on the basis of what Christ has done with the better covenant, we are told that not only are we forgiven, but God will no longer remember our sins. Isn't that awesome? And you know it's not that he forgets them, because God is, is all-knowing. He doesn't forget anything, but he chooses to never ever bring it up again because you've now been covered with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when he sees you, when he sees me, when he sees all who are enrolled in Zion, he sees righteousness. Not yours, but Jesus' righteousness given to you. And then we have the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's number seven. So why mention Abel? There's a lot of discussion on this. But Abel was the first son in the Bible who was killed. And since that point, his blood cried out, justice. Something has to be done. A wrong has been committed. Sin has come. Justice must be given. And Jesus comes, the perfect son, that he would die in our place, that he would pay the price for our sins on a cross, so that we who believe in him, his blood cries out, justified, forgiven, 
The only reason we spend eternity in Zion is because of the blood of Christ. And we are told that we will never, ever forget the cross. In a million, million, million years from now, we will never forget the cross. In fact, right now we're told in Revelation 5, 9 through 12, this is what's happening. And they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. Worthy is Jesus to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Remember, we already saw this, right? This is number two in Zion. Innumerable amount of angels and festal gathering praising God. What are they saying right now? They're crying out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Never in a million times a million times a million years will we ever cease to forget the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's why we're in Zion. This is the reason. God, the Father, the perfect judge, sent his son, Jesus, to come that he would enact a better covenant by being a better mediator, by better blood, that we would be forgiven and have an eternal home. These seven truths elaborate on the six words that Paul gives us in Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven. So what Paul says in six words, Hebrews is like, no, no. Let's unpack that a little bit. And I'll give you seven truths that talk about what it means our citizenship is in heaven. So if you've trusted in Jesus, this is your home right now. Do you get that? And you might be going, well, well what do you mean it's my home right now? Like I'm, I'm literally right here. I'm going back to my home in 98503. This is where we have this already not yet tension that's brought into the Bible. This is your home. You are holy, and yet you're being made holy. This is your home, and yet God is bringing you to his home. It's both truths. In fact, it's so incredibly true for you right now, we can speak of it in the present tense, while yet the fuller consummation of that experience comes when Jesus returns. Does that make sense? It is yours It's fully yours, but you'll experience the fullness of it when Christ then returns. And no wind, no fire, no flood, no trees can destroy this house. It's held together by the power of God. So what do we do with that truth? What do we do with these seven truths? This is our home. Well, Remember what the author is, why he's writing. The church is tired. The church is worn out. They're thinking about coming off the narrow path of Christ and diverting and going off on one of these side routes. And all these side routes lead to, lead to Sinai. All of them lead to Sinai. And so he's encouraging them, this is your path. This is what Christ has done for you. This is what he has given you in Christ. What compares to this. And as he highlights the beauty of this path, simultaneously he's showing the horror of all these other paths. To depart from this path would be to abandon all of these truths that are ours in Christ. And so he's calling us to keep running the race. This is who you are. This is where you're at. But now he's going to now give a second means of encouragement And he gives it in a means of warning. And the warning is meant to be an act of love. Just like when you tell your kids, don't run across the street without looking, you give them a warning because you love them. You're wanting them to heed the warning, not experience the danger of going across the street and getting hit. You give them the warning so they heed the warning and they experience the blessing that that warning gives. That's what's happening here. He gives a warning... So we heed the warning, we make sure of our salvation. If there's anything that's taking us to another path, we would repent of that and trust in Christ. And so let's look at this warning. And this is just so you know, this is the last 
warning that the author gives. He's given many warnings throughout the book. In fact, this warning is tied to the very first warning in chapter 2, and it kind of bookends almost the whole book of Hebrews. And the word that connects it is the word escape. In Hebrews chapter 2, we're told that if they did not, if they did not escape the judgment of God, when they departed from the judgment that, that from the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, how much more will they not escape the judgment of Christ? And here it's, if, you, if the Israelites did not escape the judgment of God at Mount Sinai, how much more will we not escape the judgment from God who is in heaven, who is speaking this message to us now? So this warning kind of bookends the whole book, and it's the last warning that he's going to give us. And the, and the message is, do not reject the message of God. That's the warning. Look at verse 25. He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He's saying, the author is saying, do not ignore the message of God, the message of this book. Throughout this book, he is referred to God as the one who has given this message. Jesus Christ is our only hope to be forgiven and to live with God on Mount Zion. There are no other roads to Zion. You are either on Mount Zion or you're on Sinai. And Sinai offers you absolutely no hope. In verse 26, he reminds the church, do you remember when Sinai shook? Do you remember when it trembled at God's presence? And then he quotes from Haggai 2.6, which says, God will once again shake all of creation. And, and the shaking is God's judgment. And what he's referring to is that when Christ returns, the first time he came was to go to the cross where he was a lamb. The second time he will come as a lion. And he will come and he will gather all of those on Mount Zion and all of those who are on Mount Sinai, all of those who think that they can come before God on the basis of their own righteousness, he will judge. And so the shaking is referring to God will once again shake everything. And he says all of creation, heaven and earth, and everything will shake. And we're told that only that which remains on Mount Zion will be unshaken, will remain, will last. We see that. It says the phrase, yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Well, what's that? The kingdom of God, the eternal city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Whoever's on Mount Zion remains. But if you're not on Mount Zion, he's saying there's a shaking that's coming. And if you're on any other mountain, you will experience the very judgment of God. Everyone who trusts in anything other than Christ will be crushed. Every kingdom, every king, every rule, every city, every culture, everyone who has not been sprinkled by the blood of Christ will experience this shaking. So what he wants us to do at this moment is, is to pause and go, have I trusted in Christ? There are many people, and you, you know this to be true, there are many people who, who attend church more like a hobby or, or a duty, but they have not trusted in Jesus Christ as their King and Savior. They're more interested in doing the things they want to. They'll make time for God when it's convenient, or, or maybe they'll just make time for God later, if at all. They live under the, the mantra, eat, drink, sex, and repeat, right? Just, just do what I want. And this can be especially true for people who have grown up in the church. I just want you to think about it. This can be especially true for people who grew up in church. You get used to hearing the message of God. Your, your ears become apathetic and dull. You go through physical motions, but there's not a movement of the heart. And so he's talking to a church. We're back in chapter 5. He says, you've become dull of hearing. You've become apathetic. You're here, but you're not here. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is that us? 
have we become dull of hearing? What is our life really centered upon? What do you long for? Do you long for Zion? Do you long for the return of Christ? Is that your hope? Or do you long for the next hunt, the next hobby, the next house? He gives a warning. And what he wants us to do is count the cost of ignoring this warning. Are you so convinced that the God of the Bible does not exist that you can dismiss these words? Are you so convinced of your current trajectory that you can dismiss this warning and just walk as you want? For if you're wrong, you'll be judged and crushed for all of eternity. So this warning is meant to stir us. It's meant to make us think, to consider, have we trusted in Christ? And then if we have trusted in Christ and yet we've taken a couple steps off the path, he's drawing us back onto the path. Repent of that. George Guthrie, a theologian, he said this, the word must be received or rejected. For those who reject the word, there exists no escape from God's judgment. At the end, a person may either reside as a citizen of God's unshakable kingdom or perish with the rest of the universe. And that's what he gives here. That's, that's the warning that he gives. He gives the beauty. This is where you're at. And the warning, you don't want to leave this mountain. You don't want to go on any other path. And this is really the exact same thing that Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, let me read these words. This is what Jesus says, Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. It shook, right? Everything's shaking, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the winds and the rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew. The shaking took place. And beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. We either build our house on the rock of Jesus Christ, on Mount Zion, or you build on something else. And whatever that something else is, will crumble, will not last. And we know that to be true. As we get older, we see that our bodies slow down, right? We see technology never lasts. It always must be replaced. Everything we buy, everything we do here, we must have more of. We must have refreshment of. There's only one thing that never needs to be replaced. The better covenant of the better blood of the better mediator, Jesus Christ, who gives us the better mountain, Mount Zion, so we would live with the one true God. That's what he's urging us. Trust in Christ. Are you running in a way worthy of Christ? Or are you not? And are we telling others about this, Jesus? If we're convinced that there's only one mountain, are we praying for those who we know are on different mountains? Are we praying for those who are straying to Mount Sinai? That's the warning he gives. And yet, It's still so pastoral and loving because he's given us the truth. This is where you're at. This is where you want to be. This is the beauty and the gift. And he says, you do not want to go over here. That's the warning because it will not last. And then he's going to give us one last call to worship here. Concluding words. He says, now if you've trusted in Jesus... If Mount Zion is your eternal home, then the author, then the author says in verse 29, then let, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Are you full of joy? Do you realize this is your home? And there's nothing that can change that? He says, be full of thanksgiving. Why is it that we as Christians can be full of joy at all times, even in the face of suffering? Because we have a home that cannot be shaken. Our names are enrolled that there is nothing, no king, no power, no dictator here on earth can erase our names on this mountain. We've not earned it. Mount Zion's not for sale. It's a gift of grace. There's nothing that distinguishes you from anyone else in and of yourself but the grace of God. That's why we have Mount Zion. So he says, be full of joy. 
What are you living for? This mountain is everything because God is there. His son is there. And it is your home if you have trusted in him. So notice, then he says, Therefore, verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Our lives are to be full of thanksgiving and joy. And as Paul says, our lives are a living sacrifice to God. Or we offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So the way that you know that this is your home, are you full of thankfulness? Are you full of joy? Are you living in light of the truths of what this God has done for you in Christ? Are you living for your hobby, for your houses, and for anything else? And then notice the last words. The last verse, verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Just think about it. How does that strike you? Is that good? Is it not good? What does that make you think of? It ought to make you go back to Sinai. Wait a minute. The gods who, that God's a consuming fire. We can't come to that God. Oh, but wait. Now we can? How? What did, did he change? No, God's immutable. He's unchanging. His quiddity never changes. His essence is perfect and pure and holy in every single way. He doesn't change. He's of God. He has no need to change. So how is it that now we are excited about being in the presence of a consuming fire? Oh, because he's given us the gospel. And he's changed us by his grace. That we'd be taken from Sion to Zion that we'd go from slave to son and that we would share in the very inheritance of his son, Jesus Christ, that his righteousness would be over us and our sins would be completely and absolutely washed away so that we can come before this God in his blazing glory and it warms us and delights us and it does not cause us fear and yet draws us in. And therefore he's calling, therefore let us run the race Don't be distracted. Don't look to Sinai. God has given everything we need in Jesus. So to go back to those three words, do you see why we have confidence in our salvation? This is our God. This is what he's done for us in Jesus. This is what he's given to us. Do you see the God that we're to be in awe of? It's this God who has done everything we need so we can live on his mountain with him for all of eternity And thus do you see why we have inexpressible joy, full of jubilation, full of elation, because there is nothing more secure than being on the rock of Jesus Christ. This is the gift that we have. Therefore, run this race. I just want to encourage you, if there's anything that's taking you away from this race, if you're on a different path, if you're running a different way, if you're distracted from Christ, if you're not gathering with the saints, if you're not growing in your knowledge and love for Christ, if your thanksgiving is not growing more and more and more on a weekly and a monthly basis, then God is drawing you back to him today. And I just encourage you to examine your heart and your life. Confess whatever it is that's drawing you away. Because there's one rock in which we stand. And any other rock will be crushed. So let us rejoice that God has given us Mount Zion in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go, and we're going to take communion together and celebrate what God has given us. Father, no, Father, we praise you. Father, there's so much joy in this text. And I pray that every single person here knows this joy that the author has given us in your word. You've given us Mount Zion, your city, a city full of angels praising you, where our names are enrolled and you are there as our judge and you are crying out, vindicated, forgiven, justified in Christ because Jesus of a better 
covenant of a better blood, of a better mediator, has saved us by dying on the cross that we'd be covered in his righteousness. Lord, I pray those truths resound in every part of our body, growing us in our joy and our thankfulness to you. And I pray that we would deeply examine if there is anything that's taking us away from running after you. For the husbands here, for the fathers, are we living for you? Are we setting an example for our families of being single-minded, focused on you in everything that we do because you are the one who saves? I pray for the wives and the moms and the women who are here that they would run after you in everything they do, loving their husbands, loving their friends, loving their children, showing them that in Christ we have a joy. I pray for the students who are here who are growing up in the church that they are not apathetic, that they are not dull of hearing. Oh, but God, they would be overwhelmed with the beauty of your gospel and that they would clearly see that there is nothing in this world that it offers that compares to the hope, the joy, the confidence, and the beauty that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. May we know that. Lord, I pray that we would make sure of our salvation today by trusting in you. If there is anyone here who has not yet trusted in you, I pray that they would see the beauty and the hope that you have given us in your son and they would trust in you today, that you would overwhelm them with your grace. You would awaken their eyes to your beauty and they would praise you. And Lord, as we take communion now, may it be to your glory. May it be to praise you for what you have done for us all by your grace in your son, Jesus. Amen.